is an Odyssey original. This is KDAX in Depth. I'm Rob Arch. And I'm Charles Feldman. Was that CNN Town Hall a triumph for Trump, but a downer for democracy? We'll go in depth. Teenagers and young adults often overlooked in L.A.'s homeless crisis. We'll explain what is being done to help. Also, an actor and martial arts expert you've no doubt seen before will be here to talk Hollywood and his new movie. Now, for those of you who follow what's going on with Twitter and Elon Musk, and who doesn't? (laughs) Well, a lot of people don't, but but a lot of people do. There is an announcement uh, from Elon Musk himself. He has sent out a tweet that he is stepping down as the CEO of Twitter. He says in the tweet that he has hired a new CEO, a woman, but he doesn't mention who that person is says that she is going to start in about six weeks. What is he going to do? He says he is going to transition to being kind of an overseer Mm. of the product. So that's Mm. the latest on Twitter. But we begin our program with CNN's very interesting town hall with former President Trump. Philip Bump is a national uh, columnist for The Washington Post, and he wrote about the town hall in his column today. Philip, thanks for being with us. Of course, happy to be. It seems to me, if I understand CNN's position on all of this, because they've come under, as you know, a lot of criticism for having that last night, it appears as if their position is that they are kind of almost what social media claims to be, uh, you know, nothing more than a conduit. And if somebody is important, somebody is prominent, somebody is running for president, in this case, happening, it happens to be Donald Trump, then their position seems to be we need to give that person a platform. And if people like it or don't like it, that's for the people to decide. Am I kind of understanding what their position is? Uh, I think you are accurately summarizing what their public argument is, uh, that, that this is that they are sort of trying to cobble together a rationale for why this was something that was important to do. Uh, I think the real position is that they were looking for an audience and that they understand that Donald Trump has a large core base of support, uh, who they're hoping would turn tune into the interview uh, and potentially even bolster their long-term efforts and their very explicit efforts to try and engage more Republicans in their viewership. Uh, but, you know, there are lots of ways in which one can interview Donald Trump uh, that is not live, that is holding to account, that is contextualizing the things that he says that are false, which they chose not to do. Uh, and I think that by itself uh, reveals what their true, true motivation is. Uh, e. Jean Carroll just won a defamation lawsuit against him, uh, gave an interview to The New York Times after the town hall and uh, indicated that uh, she and her lawyer are thinking about the possibility of suing Trump again for continued defamation of her during the town hall. But some experts are wondering whether or not she might have a case of suing CNN for platforming those defamations in the same way that Fox News gave a platform for people to disparage Dominion. Do you think there's a case there? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a much more difficult case to make, in part because CNN is protected by uh, the First Amendment in a way that Donald Trump isn't. And second, that, you know, the the comparison to Fox News falls short a bit, given that Fox News did this, you know, over the course of more than a month and after having been warned multiple times by Dominion about the fact that it was elevating false claims, uh, which, you know, I think is a, is a fairly different thing. But, it, you know, it's certainly the case 
that there is a question to be raised about the extent to which CNN should have anticipated that all Donald Trump was going to do when given the microphone was continue to do the sorts of disparaging commentary that he was offering on Truth Social, uh, which he was even that day. Uh, and, you know, I think that that one could certainly argue that CNN should have anticipated that that would be the result. In the beginning uh, of this program, we set it up by saying and we're asking the question, actually, whether this was a triumph for Trump, but a downer for democracy. I read your column with great interest. So I think I know how you're going to answer that. But I'm going <laughs> to let you answer that question. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a failure. I mean, look, you know, it's only 70 minutes, right? We're, we are now entering a presidential campaign season. We've got a lot of time ahead of us. This in the grand scheme of things was not necessarily something that's going to be a huge factor. However, it is emblematic of a decision being made about how to handle Donald Trump that I think was just wrong top to bottom, right? There were lots of ways you can gauge Donald Trump that don't involve just opening up the camera to him and letting him steamroll your your uh, anchor, you know, and, 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 and packing the room with a bunch of people who have voted for Donald Trump in the past, which is necessarily what you're doing when you're talking about Republican primary voters, right? These are people that voted for him in 2020 or, and or 2016. Uh, there, there is no such thing as an agnostic Republican electorate in this unusual election cycle. And as such, all of this was was foreseeable. And the fact that CNN this morning, you know, there's been reporting about the call that, you know, the CNN staff had this morning in the wake of this, and they're feeling, Chris Licht, the, the new head of CNN, was feeling fairly celebratory about it, uh, I think is remarkable. And I think that the 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 lesson that one ought to take away from what CNN did is that they did it wrong and that we need to be more attentive to how we engage in the election broadly, but Trump specifically over the course of the next 18 months. All right. Thank you. Philip Bump with The Washington Post. Still ahead, we talked to an actor and martial arts expert, and uh, I believe that that person will also beat the living daylights out of Charles as, uh, you know, to show us how it's done. But wait a minute, that, that, would be, uh, that would be an unfair fight. You know as well as I do, I'm sitting here with a broken exactly. foot. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yes, you, you know, a sparrow could beat the daylights out of me, so, you know, and that's not fair. Next thing we'll bring a sparrow who's a martial arts yes, expert. Okay. Uh, you have seen this person on the big screen. He's out with another movie, and uh, he will be here to talk talk about it. Right now, though, the homeless crisis continues to be a major focus in Los Angeles City Hall. Perhaps not talked about enough the number of teens and young adults who end up on the streets. And that is where My Friend's Place in Hollywood comes in. So with us now in the studio is My Friend's Place Executive Director Heather Carmichael. Heather, thanks for coming. Thank you. And Dr. Cheryl Racinos, who is a board member for My Friend's Place and this is interesting, too, was formerly homeless herself. Doctor, thanks for being with us as well. Thank you for having me. Can I call you Cheryl so we're not all formal here? Absolutely. Okay, very good. So let me start off, uh, actually, Cheryl, with you uh, and tell us a little bit about your story, because it is interesting to people uh, how you ended up going in that spectrum from being homeless yourself to now you're a doctor. And, and uh, tell us a little bit about that journey. Sure. Um, I ended up on the streets in Hollywood twice. First, when I was 13 and I had run away from home. Um, I grew up in a dysfunctional home on the East Coast, and I ran away to California when I was 13. That didn't go well, and I ended up back in my home state in foster care and then in, in juvenile hall. Um, it was a very long ordeal, and it made me less trusting of adults. And by the time that I was 16, my home life had collapsed, and I ended up back in California for good 
back in Los Angeles, back on the streets. And that time was a very rough period in my life. Um, I didn't trust adults for many good reasons. And it took several years of me being on and off the streets, sometimes in shelters, sometimes on the streets, sometimes in squats, um, which are abandoned houses or abandoned buildings. And it, it took a lot of you know, kindness from adults, um, especially at my friend's place. Um, the youth workers there were really dedicated to talking to me in, in different ways than the other adults in my life had. And they used trauma-informed care, um, really made sure that they met my needs and asked me what I wanted and gave me autonomy, which was something I wasn't getting from other youth agencies or from adults in general. And so by the time I got off the streets, I had developed a bond with them and I trusted them. And, you know, I kept coming back. I kept coming back to volunteer. I brought my kids to visit. And, you know, one thing led to another, like as my life has progressed and I've gone in the direction that I wanted to go in and I became a physician, I've, I've come back and tremendously been able to you know, volunteer and donate. And I'm so honored every single time I'm able to write a check to them because it means that they can help other kids like me. Wow, interesting story. Wow. And uh, this question for uh, my friend's place, executive director, uh, Heather uh, Carmichael. Heather, what's the first thing that happens when someone who is homeless comes to you or do you go out to find them? What's the first thing that is done at my friend's place for that person? I think the most important um, action that our staff members do when a young person first visits us is to literally say hello, see them, and welcome them. To create a sense of safety and belonging is imperative, given the issue that we're up against. People, uh, communities are moving over and around these young people. So for a young person to know that they have a safe place to be where they can eat, shower, get clothing, and then progress into the other kind of services we have that includes education, employment, mental health, and a pathway towards housing. Heather, how did you get into this? Ah, great fortune. Um, I started this work in San Francisco many, many years ago. And when I moved back to Los Angeles, I was working for Children's Hospital. I was a roaming suicide homicide crisis assessor. And I was placed in a multitude of organizations, all that do very lovely work. But my friend's place was the primary site. And I could see the fundamental difference in how the organization was receiving and holding young people and how the young people were responding to the opportunities in the organization. When I had the opportunity to come on staff at that point as the clinical director, I knew I had an opportunity of a lifetime, and that it has been. I've been there 23 years, and I am as passionate about these young people as I have ever been. Cheryl, someone who's been on the front lines of, of homelessness, first of all, there's that feeling that I would imagine of being in this deep, dark hole that you can't get out of when you are homeless and you feel like you have no options to turn to. Uh, how, when you think about that feeling magnified by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are homeless just in this area alone, uh, what really can be done for this overall crisis and, and, and how you found help at my friend's place? Thank you for asking. Definitely what we need is housing. We need housing for young people as well as for older people. Um, that housing needs to be supportive and continue to provide resources for people because there's a lot of trauma they need to heal from when they come off the streets. Um, definitely we need to continue helping programs like My Friend's Place to be at the forefront of helping um, young people get through that trauma as they get into housing. But definitely housing is the number one solution. Um, 
as for myself, you know, when I got off the streets, I, I, I got into an apartment the first time I got off and it didn't last. I, I lost that housing. And it's, it's a common experience for young people, especially when they get off the streets and not having um, the same adult support that, you know, like one of my own adult children would have if they were to go to their first apartment. It's very easy to lose everything and have to start all over again. Um, but the, the beauty in it is that I found support still through my friend's place and they helped me and they weren't upset with me that I lost my apartment. They, they helped guide me towards the next steps um, and helped me get into, at that point I had a new baby and they helped me get into um, a mother program so I could stay there until I figured out my next steps. And I'm so appreciative for that. Heather, I don't want to turn this segment uh, into a political uh, discussion, although it's hard to divorce politics uh, in the end from homelessness or the homelessness uh, crisis because politics plays a role in trying to come up with solutions. Uh, so I'm wondering, from your vantage point, how do you think the city is performing now? As I'm sure you know, uh, L.A. City Mayor Karen Bass, her whole focus has been since day one on this particular issue. Do you have any view on whether or not you think that the game plan that she and her administration has is a good one and a workable one and ultimately will be an effective one. I think first and foremost, um, I want to acknowledge that we need political will in order to address this issue. This has been an issue that has been growing for many, many, many years, and that's been a disinvestment on many layers of our particular city. So I applaud as our community leaders are stepping up and in and resourcing uh, organizations and systems to reorient to ending homelessness. So um, I think always we, from the young adult uh, care provider, we are always looking at how our leaders are including or not intentionally including young people. Systems must be designed in such a way that they are taking care of people on the developmental phases of our life. So for you, Rob and Charles and I, if we were to come into homelessness, how that would be resolved would be very different than the 16-year-old Cheryl. Cheryl at 16 did not have the economics, the social connections, or the life experience to navigate that. So very important that our leaders, our providers, and our community members keep that in mind. As the mayor endeavors into all of the efforts that we all must have confidence in because we need innovations, if we stop innovating, what are we doing to our city? So uh, as that innovation occurs, we really want to make sure from the youth perspective that that is going to create change and possibility. Our city relies on our young people in order to grow and thrive. We are going to be as vulnerable as our vulnerable young person. So I, um, I believe in that investment. I believe that we must uh, continue to work from the margins inward, not only to end homelessness, but to prevent homelessness for children, young adults, adults and seniors. Uh, Heather, I understand very quickly here, uh, you have some kind of event coming up soon. 
We do. We are, we're celebrating our 35th year of service uh, to young people. So we are having a grand gala. And really that grand is for opportunities like right now being here with you. It is to draw attention to the issue and it is to pl- applaud our community of support. We have an amazing community of support. We are prim- primarily privately funded, which allows us to be as flexible as the young people need us so that we can stand on each corner of their life and partner. So we've got some phenomenal champions this uh, coming Saturday. Van Support and Feed, Isaiah Johnson and Michelle Stone, excuse me, Storm, (laughs) as well as our founding leaders. 35 years later, so many of these people are still a part of our organization. And can anybody attend this? Absolutely. All you got to do is check out myfriendsplace.org and find the tickets there. All right, there you go. Uh, We want to thank our guest today, Dr. Cheryl Racinos, board member of My Friend's Place, formerly homeless as a teenager, went through it right there on the front lines. Also, Heather Carmichael, executive director of My Friend's Place in Hollywood. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Jason Scott Lee. Skills is both an actor and a martial artist have landed him in dozens of Hollywood roles over the past few decades. Yeah, he played Bruce Lee in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. He starred in the live-action Jungle Book movie and played the main bad guy in the live-action Mulan film. Lee's latest movie is a Western set in... Hawaii. 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 It's like an echo in here. I said Hawaii. Hawaii. Let's try Hawaii. Hawaii. <laughs> Hawaii. 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 <laughs> it's, it's called The Wind and the Reckoning, and he is with us now. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you. Uh, for, you know, I just want to say I, I met some wonderful ladies, uh, you know, your previous guests and with my friend's place, and I just think what a great cause. And, you know, if, uh, I, I, I'm popping in just for a millisecond here in L.A., but, you know, I think it's a worthy cause to get out there on, you know, this weekend and, and uh, spend some time out there. Excellent. Great. That's very good. So, so let me ask you about the film, and then we'll get into some other stuff in your life. Uh, when, when people think of a Western they think of, you know, uh, Arizona, perhaps, Nevada, you know, right. uh, Sierra Nevada. Most people would not say Hawaii. No. So tell us how there's a Western that you're <laughs> in, starring in, in Hawaii. You know, what, what most people don't know is that um, there was a lot of uh, Spanish uh, cowboys um, who ended up in Hawaii. And actually, there were cowboys in Hawaii before the West, before the, the American frontier. And, um, you know, it's kind of proven in, in, in some rodeos that they had. There were some uh, what we call in Hawaii paniolos. There was a, they were called Hawaiian cowboys. And they competed in rodeos, um, I think, believe in Wisconsin uh, or um, Wyoming. Wyoming, that's it. And they won. And these, they, they were really adept uh, cowboys. And they could know how to rope. They know how to ride. They, they had some really uh, high skill set. And, um, you know, this Paniola culture kind of remained in the islands, and they they cultivated uh, everything from musical, you know, instruments that the Spaniards brought with the guitar and um, made slack-key music, Hawaiian slack-key music. And, um, you know, it's been a a permanent facet of of so many Hawaiian families uh, through generations. Um, And um, with with this story... um, the character I play, Ko'olau, the main character, he's uh, a Paniolo. And um, John Fusco, who's, who's, who's the writer, uh, he, you know, does, he has a lot of research and, and has done a lot of Western-type films. 
so when he found this story, and I believe I read this story a, a long time ago, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Jack London wrote a short yeah. story mm. on um, Kola, the leper war. And uh, that's the timing of this was the late 1800s when this uh, uh, situation took place with, within the film. You know, we were uh, when we were speaking before we went on the air, uh, talking about uh, a Western set in Hawaii, and it's hard to imagine going further west than Hawaii. <laughs> and then I said, I I don't think that Hawaii is the most west of United States uh, states. Uh-huh. And uh, I looked it up, and Charles, I was right. Oh. Yeah, uh, Atu <laughs> Island is in the Aleutian Islands off of Alaska. Which, which island? Uh, Atu Island. Atu. Okay. Uh, and it is it is so far west, yeah. it's in the eastern hemisphere. And it is further west than the Hawaiian Islands. So it's near Siberia. <laughs> yeah, kind of like Siberia. So, But as far as it being in the eastern hemisphere, I guess that way you could technically say Hawaii is as far west as you can get. I got it. So And still be in the west. <laughs> right. So uh, tell us a little bit uh, more about this movie. Uh, who else is in it with you? And uh, what are we going to get? Is it going to be um, like action? Are there going to be aliens? Are there oh. going to be? Uh, it's <laughs> a rom com. You always get back to aliens. I always go back to aliens. You always go back to aliens. Just in case they're coming here, I want to let them know I was friendly. He could be in a. He could be in a World War II stitch, you know. But he could be in a World War Two movie, and you would go back to aliens. Right. Where Where the? How did the aliens help the allies? <laughs> yeah. okay. well, this is a historical drama, and the uh, story is taken from uh, P. Ilani's book. She was the wife and mother of uh, who was part of this family that it, this drama took place, um, and she came out unscathed after her husband Koalau and her son uh, Kale had had passed away from leprosy. So, and and the account is true, and uh, the family is from Kauai, the island of Kauai, and um, it, what happened was that during this time, leprosy was a pandemic in the islands. And some Hawaiian families had no uh, defenses against it. So this particular family, who we mentioned earlier, like Ko'olau was a, was a cowboy. And um, he had a skill set. And he, they were forced, the new provisional government, who had illegally overthrown the um, Hawaiian monarchy, came in and changed the laws and said that, okay, now we're going to round up all of you lepers. And uh, Ko'olau and his son contracted leprosy. And we're going to ship you off to the island of Molokai to be quarantined forever. So any marriages, any contracts, anything was null and void. Uh, which meant that Kolau's wife, Pilani, and the mother of Kale uh, would have to stay on Kauai by herself. And there was like at this time, you know, there was, there was this thing about ohana, as we say in Hawaii, about family. And about nothing should separate family. And, um, and, and that was the thing that... that, that Tore, tore this family apart. So they decided to fight. And in that conflict that happened within the township, there was a sheriff that got killed. So now, Ko'olau and his family are fugitives. So they, they have to escape into these deep valleys and ravines out on the north side of the island called Kalalau Valley. And they tried to hide out there. Uh, little did they know that Sanford Dole, who was the provisional government president at the time, uh, lost face oh. uh, on this ordeal. And so he sent out a regiment of, of U.S. soldiers to go grab this renegade uh, fugitive. And um, that's where this leper war, you know, kind of oh. rumored to, to happen. 
All right, that's called The Wind and the Reckoning is the name of the movie. We are in the studio with uh, the man who played uh, once played Bruce Lee in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, and uh, also is in this new film. Uh, we are speaking with Jason Scott Lee. We'll have more with him coming up on In-Depth. And we're back talking in studio with actor Jason Scott Lee. His new movie is debuting in L.A. this weekend. It is called The Wind and the Reckoning. Reckoning. There we Reckoning. Go. Uh, yes, which, as we've discussed, is a Western in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, Jason, let me ask you, uh, I want to go back into your, your, your past a bit because you know, a lot of people know you having played Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. uh, and we should point out you're not related in any way no. to Bruce Lee. Um, but I also understand that that was a, a difficult period of your life, playing that role. Why? Oh, it was, um, you know, growing up watching Bruce and, 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 and you know, thinking that I'd have to emulate him and seeing some of the uh, other um, Chopsaki movies, as we say, of Bruce Lee, you know, and I, I wasn't very convinced. And then I thought, wow, this could be a disaster. Um, you know, I was in between agents and um, just, you know, was kind of floored at the uh, opportunity. And I uh, wasn't really sure I was up to the task. Um, and it, it, it hit me hard. I mean, I, you know, I think maybe I was just on the wrong path with, with you know, the whole program of, of getting me up to speed on, on being that character. Um, so, yeah, it just kind of like fell apart. And then until I, until I met with um, a student of Bruce who was really had the skill set and had the knowledge that Bruce had, and uh, he brought me into this whole other realm of Bruce Lee's training. And then I, then I felt, wow, well, you know, kind of a, a new confidence in preparing for the role. And, and that was like, you know, a huge difference. I mean, it just made everything. It changed my life, actually. So in addition to the uh, martial arts skills, there were some mental and character skills that you learned from that as well. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, a lot of time, you know, he say, "Oh, how are you feeling?" I say, "Oh, a little bit sore." And he says, "Oh, well, let's just like sit down and talk." We made some tea, we sat down and, and went over Bruce's philosophy, and and that really, um, you know, got into me that uh, his Taoist thinking and like where Bruce's mind was at, and he was like, "Well, I want to go where Bruce's mind was. I want to go where my mind can go." And where's that? Well, if you can think at the speed of light, maybe that's uh, an option. And uh, I think that you know his his force was was directed towards this metaphysical kind of thing. So, you know, all that I took into consideration and, like, started, you know, kind of working intrinsically, working metaphysically, working physically, and that is the martial arts. I mean, that was the gift of what uh, the martial arts offered from the Chinese culture was this merge of, like, uh, holistic, you know, personality, I guess. And, um, you know, when the mind, body, and spirit is one, as they say. Um, so this is the the tactic. This is the the Zen quality of it. This is um, where we need to do to 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 heal the mind and the body and and, and make sure the spirit is is you know in good standing. So so this film and how many years ago was that now? Was, oh gosh, thirty years. Thirty years. So it clearly has had a a lasting impact on you to this day. I, I mean, your is your life you think significantly different because it sounds like it is than it would have been these past 30-some-odd years had you not taken on that role. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, the whole thing with um, the martial arts that I was taught, he says he always kept saying, nature is your greatest teacher. And, um, you know, all this working and training, and, and I'd learned, you know, blade work. I learned how to use weapons. And, you know, 
I was like a monster. I mean, I like you know, like you're you're trained to disseminate someone with the lightning, explosiveness, everything. So I said there got to be a counter counterbalance to that. And so I got into uh, gardening. Like he says, you know, I started reading all this Taoist text of like, who is is the closest to the Tao, as they say. Oh, farmers. Why farmers? Because farmers are observing the environment, observing the 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 cosmos, the universe, how the weather patterns come and go and change, how there's growth spurts in the, in in the grass and the, and the plants, and by having that sensitivity and awareness to nature, you're seeing yourself within that structure, and I think that's what took me to the Big Island. It's what took me to buy a a, a plot of land and and really like spend the time building my farm and having a homestead. Um, having that vision in place without, you know, having the sense of like, oh, rushing to make money or rushing to capitalize on my fame or, or, or any of this, it was completely outside of everything. And it was completely rewarding these past 30, 30 odd years. Um, you know, just in my health and in my well-being and, um, you know, just seeing, seeing the positivity in that without, you know, the news of the day bring you down. Uh, very quickly here, because we're running out of time, uh, we're saving the most important question for last, and that is this. Uh, my friend Charles over here is playing with an injury. Uh, could you teach him how to beat somebody up even with his injury? <laughs> it's called how to use a weapon, how to use anything at your desk. Mm -hmm. you know, ah. When something comes in, you grab a pen, you, um, you grab a, a, a very... Um, how about a cup of water? There you go. You can grab a newspaper. Grab We've got a, a bowl of jelly beans wait, over I got, there. I got a newspaper. Wait, hold on. Hold on. I got a, you got roll a newspaper. It up. You take it and you roll it up as tight as you can. Right. Right. Okay, I'm rolling it. it. I'm rolling it. The tighter you get it, yeah. you make it into an iron bar. An iron bar. Oh, you, you could do some damage. All right. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> as Charles, Take that, uh, Rob. As, <laughs> as Charles gets more violent, that's going to do it for KDX and Dump today. We want to thank our guest in the studio with us, Jason Scott Lee. The new movie uh, debuting in L.A. this weekend is called The Wind and the Reckoning. And we'll do another edition of KNX in Depth tomorrow 